it's a rare opportunity I get to actually experience something that was written about. Yeah. On, on one of so our typically sites. we make it like with, uh, you know, as a as a dessert, as a pie, um, and it was meant, you know, to mimic uh, lemon pie, but in uh, an age when lemons were either out of reach when you're like way back, you know, here on the farm away from stores or lemons were just kind of prohibitively expensive, you got really creative with what little you had in the kitchen. So this is just uh, some eggs from the farm and vinegar and uh, the vinegar and nutmeg, the nutmeg together, nutmeg is kind of the key ingredient because it gives it that fragrant quality that lemons have that vinegar doesn't. Um, so you put it in there, just put your finger in there, just like. Holy shit. It's pretty lemony, right? And there's not a lemon in sight. No lemon. Wow. Now is the dandelion already in there? No, the dandelion's not in there yet. That's coming on top That comes of it. later, yeah. And the dandelion is, um, it just gives it this sort of nice floral quality. Hot damn. Yeah, buddy. That's a lemon pie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not lemons. I mean, that sounds like some sort of euphemism that I wouldn't <laughs> want to be involved in necessarily, but damn, that is good. If life doesn't give you lemons, make lemon pie or something like that. That is the moral, I think, of my two days last spring at Lost Creek Farm in West Virginia. The Harrison County farmstead that dates back in Amy Dawson's family to the 1880s. She and her partner Mike Costello are revitalizing that farm and, they hope, shaping in the process the notion of what Appalachian agriculture and cuisine can be. It's kind of a Shangri-La up there. They've stocked the place with that breed of chickens that looks like it's wearing pants. They've planted regional heirloom crops like fat horse beans and bloody butcher corn. And they've added a bunch of meat rabbits who all meet their end in a nifty little pair of mounted shears attached to a tree out front. Now, I had gotten a sense from afar of the life that Amy and Mike were building for themselves. They hosted Anthony Bourdain at Lost Creek for the Parts Unknown episode in West Virginia. Mike hosts an excellent podcast, the Pickle Shelf Radio Hour, and I find his presence on social media compelling. Occasional farm porn of cattle on the rolling hills but a lot of skewering the stories that outsiders tell about Appalachia, or even sometimes the stories that Appalachians tell about themselves. But forget social media. To really get a sense of what Mike is about, you have to come up to Lost Creek and see how he puts those ideas on the plate. In my time with him, we went up to the hills above the farm, found morel mushrooms, wild ramps, violets and yarrow, and sweet citric wood sorrel and Mike cooked it all up with venison and trout and this lemonless lemon curd they used to make in the days before supermarkets. It was ingenious and inventive, delicious, all of the things that Appalachia has always been and always should be. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. All right, what are we drinking here? Uh, so this is some cider, some traditional cider from Hawknob Cidery in Lewisburg. Uh, really good friends of ours. Uh, we've known these guys for a long time. Um, the cidery is probably only four years old, but 
these guys have been making sake for a long time. And we went to college with him, hung out a lot at potlucks and just like at each other's houses doing a lot of homebrew and a lot of cooking together. And we always talked a lot about, you know, our dreams of like either getting back into food or doing cider commercially. And, uh, man, somehow the stars aligned and we both ended up doing these things. And, um, you're in food, he's insider. We're in food, he's insider. And, uh, you know, they're really like one of the only other businesses that kind of fully embrace this kind of place-based tradition when it comes to food and, and beverage. You know, they make this sort of old world style of cider that was pretty prevalent in Appalachia before Prohibition. And define old world cider. Like what? Well, it's a, it's much drier. So most of the cider that's on the American market right now is like, it's pretty sweet. Okay. You know, um, and I feel like this is actually a kind of a challenge for these guys because there's like this perception um, of cider in America being like, a little bit too sweet you know and if, yeah. it's true like if you get the really commercially available the ones that are widely available commercially like whatever the like angry orchard or whatever yes. This is. Yes. <laughs> so it's like not very drinkable to to me or a lot of other people that like the dryer stuff on the dryer side so this one i think is their okay yeah so this is their their classic and then we're also going to drink this one that's their traditional dry hard cider that's bourbon barrel aged so this is hawk knob mm-hmm Appalachian classic dry hard cider. Mike Costello, yeah. thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Shit, that's good. That's good, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's no angry orchard, <laughs> which is basically Just a little like less a angry. <laughs> sweet iced tea with uh, some sort of alcoholic component. It's like Mott's apple juice with a little like <laughs> splash of rubbing alcohol. <laughs> You heard that? We're coming for you, Angry Orchard. <laughs> you and your oversweet corporate bullshit. Um, this is a this is super fucking good. Now, um, so what is the cider tradition of of Appalachia? I mean, you said old world. Are we talking about the Spaniards who had come up here? Or? Uh, well, the Spanish wave of immigration was like um, it was either like during or after Prohibition. But this is an early European style cider it's traditional in appalachia because it was able to be made with ingredients that you could grow here you know so we used to have a lot more variety a lot more abundance of apple trees in west virginia partially because of the cider industry in like the 1800s or early 1900s and you know when these guys opened up a couple years ago they were the only cidery in west virginia there's since been one other cidery that's open but still it's like considering how traditional a product it actually is there's like virtually nothing i mean just like these guys and then one other shop but there are a bunch of wineries in west virginia right i can't really tell you why because this is a shitty place to grow grapes <laughs> you heard and, that west virginia and wine. most of the uh wine that's actually produced in west virginia is not made with grapes that are grown in west virginia it's like concentrate that's grown you know like grapes that are grown in california and shipped over it's so Mott's apple juice turned it into, is, into yeah. wine. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, right? Because then, I mean, we've seen a lot of wines in some pretty unlikely places. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's everybody just getting ready for global warming. <laughs> Figure, <laughs> well, we should stretch this winemaking tradition back at least 15 yeah. years before yeah. the great dry or something. But right. so you look at that and you're fairly confounded as to why you're not actually making something that does sell as a category pretty well and 
is something that's actually indigenous to right. to this place. Right. Um, and, and these guys are, are so supportive of the growing community around uh, cider and you know craft beverage and uh, sort of traditional food. And, and we team up with them so much because we just are, we're so kind of in line in our uh, in our mission as, as like a real sort of place based traditional food and beverage business. You know, they're they're like trying to get the cider industry going, you know, and encouraging new cideries to open up and. Uh, that's been really nice to see because I think in in some other industries, I mean, I've seen this in like wineries, for instance, or um, even like in the earlier days of the craft brewing scene here, it was so territorial and there was a lot of animosity when like a new business would open up. But I yeah, think this, it's like this when, shit is hard enough right, right, <laughs> without right. like everybody gunning for each other. But when when we see that you know, if we create a community and we create a scene that people can seek out, we're much better off than just like a standalone business that is like the only game in town. And yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that scene. Cause obviously that's a, you know, that's a big part of your evangelism about the region. And it starts, I think with what it used to be like. So I would love to hear from you, you know, what growing up in Appalachia was like for you in the sense of like how how did you perceive your culture how mm-hmm. how did you see other people perceiving it uh, and let's let's start there um well yeah it's a it's a really good question i think because it's like that backstory sort of defines like every single thing that we do <laughs> and um and I, I think for me i have a little bit of a unique perspective being from appalachia but my dad actually moved here when he was about my age now uh, from New Hampshire. And I think that I have to acknowledge that sort of contrast and perception and uh, perspective whenever I was growing up, because like if it weren't for this sort of appreciation for West Virginia that my dad had as an outsider, I can't say for sure that I would have appreciated this place as much because I know a lot of people who, you know, they're from here, their family is all from here. And it's like without being able to contrast it to anything on the outside, there's not as much sort of like reverence for like anything that comes from this place because it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, this is this is just what happens here. And it's what it's always happened. And it's not really that special because so they don't have the new eyes on the good stuff, but they're still eating all the right. shit that they're being fed. Right. Kind of from yeah. the larger culture yeah. about what it means to be Appalachian. Right. 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 And, you know, so my dad moved down here from New Hampshire and fell in love with the place. And that's why he stuck around. And, you know, I was I like I grew up being really proud of being from West Virginia. There's a really strong sense of state pride here, but I also grew up, you know, seeing the sort of media portrayals and seeing all the stereotypes and all the tropes sort of played out in uh, either the movies or in uh, journalism. You know, it wasn't that infrequent that 2020 or, you know, Diane Sawyer or whoever would like show up in Appalachia and have this like dismal portrayal of mountain people. And, you know, it's like, I think all... uh, a lot of the times the intentions behind those stories were, were good. It's like we're going to tell a story and we're going to raise awareness around the issue. But I think what ends up happening is, you know, you just sort of reinforce the stereotype. And then, um, you know, despite these like really good intentions that some of these outside journalists have, there's such like a damaging effect when it comes to like morale. And uh, I think it all comes down to the sort of power of storytelling and, and you know, 
the story being told by us or about us by somebody else. And I think that like we're, you know, we're so used to having that story told by somebody else. Yeah. And, um, and it's not always, uh, it certainly is not always like an accurate story. And it's, uh, actually quite rarely is an, an accurate, accurate story, but, well, I, um, yeah, I do feel like journalists have, uh, some, some, some things to answer for down here. Fortunately, you have, uh, you're the one with the degree in journalism, so I can rope you in. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although, uh, I would, I would, I would assume that that, that must've been some of the impulse that you had too, was, uh, to get into that it's like feeling like all right i've got some kind of story to tell mm -hmm. about this place mm -hmm. let me let me try to get some of the tools to make that happen. yeah for sure and i mean it was interesting the way that i i ended up in journalism school because when i was a teenager i wanted to be a chef and I, I had actually enrolled in culinary school in south carolina in charleston south carolina at johnson wales and i was working at this restaurant my senior year in high school and uh man it just turned me off of the restaurant industry in so many ways and i mean part of it was just the sort of like the madness like the hours and the chef that I worked under, he was, uh, he was a great advocate for, for me and very supportive, but man, I just like, I just watched him melt down every night and, you know, and I just, uh, saw that was sort of like toxic environments effect on him. And, um, you know, I think it really challenged what I, what I wanted to get out of a culinary career. You know, I was sort of like driven by the creativity behind it and then sort of like ended up in a restaurant where, you know, the chef at the highest position at the end of the day is still just executing somebody else's menu day in, day out. And it's right. It wasn't that appealing to me. And doing um, it as a ball of raw nerve and right, anger. Right. <laughs> the sort of state pride thing kind of factored in because I was like really proud of this place. And at the time I wasn't really thinking about entering into the food world as like a chef specializing in Appalachian cuisine or something, but you still see it when, when people are, they have this mentality that there's like nothing good that could come from West Virginia. So we are not going to call ourselves Appalachian. We're not going to embrace like our sort of place-based spirit. And we're not going to call ourselves West Virginian because we think that those terms Appalachian West Virginia have like such a negative connotation and more of an association with shame and poverty that we're just going to like stay away from them and try to convince the rest of the world that we're like just as good as the place that they come from. So all this stuff added up and I, um, yeah, I like dropped out of culinary school before I even started and I uh, enrolled at like the very last minute in journalism school. And um, man, it was the best thing I could have ever done because all the technical skill sets in the kitchen I could learn, you know, I still worked in the food industry for a while, like when I was in college and, and even after that some. So, you know, that stuff, can be learned in other ways, but I, I picked up this like, you know, skill set as a storyteller, and I picked up this sort of like deeper appreciation for not only the place, but the culture connected to the place mm -hmm. when I went to journalism school, because it was the first time that I had really like given myself the opportunity to get out and talk to people about, you know, why this place or why this culture is important to them. And a lot of my reporting when I was in college was about food and Ramps, actually ramp season was sort of the first like really big multimedia project that I took on. And oh, that's crazy. It was great, man, because wow. it was just like getting people to talk oftentimes for the first time about, you know, like what these traditions mean, what the sort of community behind something like a community ramp supper means. And, you know, the sort of uh, environmental ethics of ramps or the cultural associations of ramps. I mean, it was all so interesting and so complex and it just like, it made me feel, you know, that there was a real 
story to be told about food in West Virginia. And it, it really made me want to like get back to food. And I always knew, I mean, I, I, I dropped out of culinary school, but I knew that I would come back to food someday. And it, and but figuring out that that you can talk about ramps and in doing so kind of tied together a lot of these different strands in in your life and things that you yeah. had seen was a way that um that's something that journalism school gave you i mean well so mm-hmm. hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Talk about ramps. We were out there foraging them, I guess, taking them wild yeah. off, off your mountain here. And, you know, you had expressed uh, some concern that somebody could, might come and just take these. I mean, you've got some pretty wide areas that are just covered in ramps. And because now Appalachian cuisine has reached some sort of moment where those ingredients are now valued, somebody could just come and poach them off your property and mm-hmm. in a way that wouldn't have really been a market for uh, some years back. You know, we're in this moment where people are talking about Appalachian food as as a trend and there's like a lot of excitement around that, right? But there's also like, there are these issues that, that pop up that make this sort of trend that everyone's so jazzed up about, like a little bit of a double-edged sword and, and ramps and over-harvesting is one of those issues. And, and we're seeing a lot of over-harvesting of ramps. Just like in recent years, I feel like, especially because ramps have gotten kind of, you know, trendier and trendier in, in the mid-Atlantic cities. So, you know, if you go to D.C., there are like a bunch of restaurants that are advertising West Virginia ramps. You can buy West Virginia ramps at the farmer's market in D.C. And I think they're they're like, I don't know, like 18 or 20 bucks a pound over there. And then, oh God. Uh, you know, I'll see sometimes people post a picture on Facebook that they're in New York City. And there's like the Whole Foods in New York or the farmer's market or whatever has West Virginia ramps. And they're even more expensive up there. And like there's such a demand on on these ramps and it's like created a little bit of a frenzy, you know, where people are just out uh, digging them super quickly and just wiping out these ramp patches. And ramps are not, it's not like a weed that's just going to come back every year. I mean, this is a, this is a plant, a really sensitive plant that you have to be careful in the way that you harvest it. And yeah. um, you have to like leave the roots in the ground so the plant can come back. But a lot of times, you know, they're, they're not paying these guys very well to go out and, and harvest these ramps that are going to be you know, turned around and sold in DC for like 20 bucks a pound. So they just, yeah, they just take these trowels to the woods and they just wipe out these ramp patches that have just been there, you know, forever. And, um, you know, and it's funny because you were explaining this to me as you were harvesting some of the ramps up there. And my metaphor alarms were just going berserk because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, well, it's trendy now and people are just taking it out by the root and it's not going to grow back. And what you have to do is leave a little bit there right. and <laughs> put it back in the soil so it can grow. And I'm like, we always talk about food being a good lens to explain things through rarely is the act of like harvesting an actual like indigenous like iconic ingredient such an easy and clear metaphor for how you deal with like commoditizing right. a culture that now for a you know for a brief moment after centuries of kind of uh neglect and and uh, abuse is now having a moment mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. 
leave the fucking yeah. root in there. Right. Don't just like rip the whole thing up and go sell it. Right. Uh, right. Real quick, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that's that's happening a lot. So we're you know we're kind of in a little bit of a crisis. It's tough. You know, you got a lot of people who grew up here just harvesting ramps the old-fashioned way digging the whole plant up and you know they wouldn't see much difference year to year because their their patches were ramp patches were like so tremendously huge and expansive that they wouldn't have to worry about over harvesting you know and they weren't yeah they weren't they weren't feeding the capital with uh, west virginia ramps (laughs) right so yeah i mean that's that's one of the things and you know with the trend it's real funny because we have to figure out how we balance uh you know the the sort of opportunities that could come our way because of the trend with like the negative consequences of just sort of irresponsibly dishing this stuff out and i mean we don't exactly have the best track record in west virginia you know like an extractive industry state (laughs) of (laughs) like taking the proper precautions in uh you know how we harvest and sell off our natural resources so let's talk um, about the coal industry <laughs> no actually we don't have to but there's a metaphor in there yeah. somewhere too right <laughs> like the coal is gone right and you know and i think that sense and we've seen it with with other cultures certainly other countries but the idea that your culture becomes inextricably linked with poverty is a special curse in america because poverty isn't just a a condition or a, a wrong to be righted, but it's a personal moral failing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's oh one, yeah, one yeah. of the things that America has really invented that's a a, a total shit sandwich right. <laughs> in history is this idea right. that you know poor people are somehow lesser than and and had got themselves into that mess. And Appalachia's kind of had to bear the brunt of that judgment, um, I guess. And and it leaves you guys bad options, like you're saying. You know, on on the one hand, you talk about people who are trying to assimilate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was happening in cuisine, right? right? Where people were trying to cook French, right? And like right. figuring that that would be the way, the way in Appalachia to to prove that they're not, you know, poor hillbillies, or right. you know, right? Yeah, and I I should say, I mean, because I talk about this stuff so much, and and sometimes I uh, I think I leave people with the wrong impression. Like I, I should say, like I'm okay with there being French restaurants in West Virginia. I just think it's such a shame when we're telling the rest of the world like this is the west virginia cuisine that you should come experience and it's right. like you know steak au poivre <laughs> <laughs> with a lovely <laughs> west virginian beaujolais right to this day there's a, a page on the west virginia division of tourism website that it says like the five best dishes in west virginia and like four out of the five are, are like fucking seafood dishes and, oh my! Uh, right, right. <laughs> oh my! <I'm laughs> I mean, I don't know that much about West Virginia, but yeah. Uh, but good Christ! Yeah. So that stuff is always it's it's very disappointing, you know, because I've uh, even before I got back into food, I was like doing some some work around uh, like public lands and tourism and sort of place based assets and community building around those things, and you know, I saw it show up in that work a lot too. It was like, you know, we, we look around and we see some other thing in some other state that we think works. And instead of realizing that we have this really unique sort of set of assets that people would want to seek out because of its uniqueness, they feel like they should recreate the thing that they liked in some other place. Right. Right. And so the result is it's like a shittier version of the thing that they liked in some other place. And like and people aren't going to seek it out because if they want the real version, they're going to go to the like 
the real place, right? <laughs> right. Well, it's like French cooking anywhere had had mm-hmm. been for a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of French preparation of seafood down in, uh, in Key West, right. which, you know, in a Caribbean context with the kind of ingredients that they had, there's just a limit to how much sense that makes. Right. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of natural ingredients that you could use that go along with the seafood that that just would not occur right. uh, at the Tour d'Argent. Right. right. <laughs> so, right, it can happen, but if that's your only point of pride and your only path to pride, yeah. then yeah. you're talking about a problem. Yeah, and you know, like we were talking earlier this morning about uh, Spain and the Spanish influence, and you know, one of my biggest inspirations for coming back and doing this place-based food venture was actually going to Spain and sort of seeing the level of pride and reverence that people had for the food in each community and the styles of food and the, like the time that it takes to make these things and, and everything of it. There's is like so full of pride. And um, I came back and I was like, you know, we could, we could do that here. We could create a, a sense of pride in the food and we could transition from this sense of shame that they have. But when I think about the way that food is often marketed here, you know, food that is like not at all really rooted in place or tradition that has any connection to West Virginia, but it's it's sort of marketed as like what you should seek out when you come to West Virginia. It would be like going to Spain and having like the Spanish Tourism Bureau be like, the top five dishes in Spain are like Thai green curry from... <laughs> From this guy, and uh, I, I know, I know, many people would rather commit seppuku than than <laughs> put that on the Spanish tourism uh, website. Uh, shout out to you, Nacho. I know you guys are defending the faith over there. All right, well, listen, this this cider is so easy drinking; it's uh, it's gone, and we need to get some more. It's so. easy, easy drinking, and uh, it's also ten percent alcohol. So one of the things you have to be careful about with this Hawknob cider is. Uh, just like your level of consumption in a short amount of time, because I've seen this happen actually. The, um, is it, is the, it their uh, opening sort of like kickoff night was at this bar in Lewisburg, and you know it's it's sort of packaged in a bottle that looks like a beer bottle. It's really easy to drink. Everybody's just like down in these things, and within like an hour, man, it was like it was like somebody hit a switch, and the whole bar just like collapsed. started to flop over. <laughs> you know? Man, I okay. Well, known side effects. Uh, podcasting while blotto. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's uh, let's run the risk. Yeah. Cheers. So, right. So they they've got scallops and ceviche and and um, French French recipes on on uh, West Virginia's tourism site, but. What what's the Mike Costello definition of at least I guess what we'd call like indigenous Appalachian food? What is it? I mean, indigenous Appalachian food was uh, food prepared from people who were here first before the Europeans. And this is something that you know. I mean, the story of Appalachia is like it's just complicated, you know. And right. and I think that this is one of the layers that we talk about a lot because it sort of gets left out right of uh the sort of narrative of a place that's oftentimes considered like this place where like the white scots irish are are the natives you know but we talk about ourselves being this like place-based culture and i think that you know it's like impossible for us to sort of tell the like fair and just story without at least acknowledging that 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 piece of it you know and it's like why we're able to live on a 180 acre farm right and you know even though like we sort of 
inherited it and like didn't have money to do much with it it still is like this tremendous privilege from this horrific legacy of uh, <laughs> of uh, land yeah uh, yeah but land theft but the uh, like you know the appalachian food that we work with i mean it, it's hard to define it's defined by that really complicated legacy and it's defined by all these like layers and layers of um you know waves of immigration and uh layers of perceptions both both from the outside and from the inside and um you know it's defined by how people made it through hard times and i think that you know when we talk about uh like defining appalachian food we we really don't like to put a, a definition on it because i think it's just like so open to interpretation based on like you know who you are and how what your experience is as as an appalachian but we definitely sort of have this this theme that I think shows up more than anything else in the the food that we prepare and the stories that we tell. And that's about, you know, just like the sort of resourceful nature of the people and getting through those times. And more than anything else, it's about like the stories and the narratives that are associated with with those times. And, and how that shows up in food is that there are, are certain foods that were prepared uh, that were like born out of these times of necessity mm -hmm. you know and uh that shows up in like all the cultures around the world but in in most of these places there's not this like negative association with that food um and like poverty and shame so right so, people will eat pizza without uh, spiraling into guilt about their right. own poverty and what has <laughs> right. brought them to this low right. moment of putting right. cheese on right. flatbread yeah you know <laughs> so there and and a lot of this comes from that sort of history of uh like media portrayals and the way that that appalachia has always sort of been seen uh from the outside and in turn you know how we've sort of seen ourselves and how we've sort of like grappled with this this like perception issue you know and how when it comes to food that was originally like designed to solve the problem of like a lack of refrigeration right you know just like the millions of other foods that we eat that are you know fermented or preserved in a way that you know could be stored because there was no refrigeration we tend to shy away from these things here because we're so sensitive about like the the perceptions around, um, you know, like how we navigated those hard times. You know, we see so much of like people coming up to us uh, after we've done a dinner event and they come up and they like sometimes they have these like tears in their eyes over, over some of these foods that they will tell us, you know, when I became an adult, I decided I was never going to eat this thing again. And, mm -hmm. and just because like, you know, my grandma used to make it for me and like I liked it when I was a kid, but to me it represented this like hard time that I felt like we moved past and I never wanted to revisit it, you know? And the, so they're like ashamed of. And then you the show poverty. up, you know, the, the food events that you do are a high, high ticket. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, oh, yeah. they're well presented. Right. They're, they're presented with, with pride and, and this superb execution. You show up and put this on a plate as a, in a, in a place of pride, I guess. Is that where the emotional, kind of switches well the... i think it's i mean it's a combination of things that's part of it you know that being served this food in a different context and you said there were two foods that, that were that had done that most of all <laughs> yeah um and these are the ones that are like the most consistent is uh it's like chow chow and tomato aspic and you have some chow chow here right i do I yeah this? right behind you i'm gonna pull this out so 
This is Chow Chow from October 17, 2017. It looks to me like kind of a, a relish mm -hmm. type thing. What, yeah, exactly. It's what, a, what it's is a this? pickled relish. Why is this the thing that brings people to tears? I mean, Chow Chow is like just one of those many foods that you know, like people would make at a time when they didn't have much money. And, you know, they gather the like kind of the leftover vegetables at the end of the harvest season and, uh, you know, throw them all together in this way that, that makes something. I mean, we'll open this later tonight and um, we can have some of it with dinner and, and you'll see like it's a really delicious thing and it's it's delicious and it's beautiful and it's like the flavors are, you know, bright and complex and there's a lot of like, um, I, I flavored this cha-chao with sorghum so it's like sweet notes and a little bit of smoky flavor and a little bit of bitterness but like the you know, like the way that all of these flavors really come together is really, really, really beautiful. And it's, and it's a product that we should be really fucking proud of, right? But the, the, so the switch, when people, you know, have this chow chow and it's presented in this way at some of our dinner events, it, it, I think it really happens when we, like we tell the story about, you know, like how chow chow was made and, and they've got a story in their minds about, what chow chow represents right and to them that's a story about poverty and it's a story about shame and it's a story about like a time that they wanted to get away from so we tell a story in a way that is not about how shameful it was that you were poor but it's a story about how innovative and resourceful the people were to get through those hard times with very few resources right and to be able to make something like this beautiful and this delicious with like virtually nothing. And this was um, just a leftover from a harvest or something. Right, right, like. right. So chow chow is like lots of different things. I mean, there's 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 a lot of debate over like what chow chow really is because there's like different versions of it. And I think like the, the sort of common thread is that it's made with sort of like the leftover ingredients. So say you're growing, um, you know, crops of... Uh, turnips and cabbage and green tomatoes and green peppers and uh, in October when it's harvest season you'll like pull all those out and you'll harvest all those things and you'll uh, you see up on that same shelf where you got the chow chow we have these jars of green tomatoes we have jars of peppers so you know you you process your batches of these things and let's say we have like a few green tomatoes left over and a few green peppers and a few turnips but not really enough to make like a whole batch you throw all those things together and uh flavor it and pickle it and you know can it up and put it on the shelf and then a couple years later or later that year you know, right dig in and so you're 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 showing the kind of the ingenuity behind it in a way that's getting people to rethink about some of this crap they've been their psychic baggage right. and carrying around right. in their head right uh, you know i mean these, these dishes. we've we've grown up all of our lives being told like how ashamed we should be of that time in our history and so these foods represent that shameful period to those of us who grew up, you know, being told by our teachers that we should leave and go to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, because that's where the opportunity really is. Or you're like, go to D.C., you know, go to go to Pittsburgh, go get just get the hell out of the state, you know, like go somewhere where there is opportunity. And um, we're so used to sort of carrying around that that baggage with us and sort of having all those associations and all these stories in our minds about this chow chow being about how poor we are. And, and if we can get people to think differently about this and to get people to think that chow chow is not about how poor we are, it's about how creative we have always been. Right. Like that changes the game. Yeah. And it gets people to, to look at food differently and it gets people to, to be willing to embrace 
their place-based heritage and it gets the West Virginia Tourism Bureau maybe to start marketing shit a little bit differently. Right. Um, well, and, and, and of course, as, as you would know too, if people are going to go down to Atlanta or, or Brooklyn uh, for that matter, they're going to see people are trying to live as much like Appalachian people right. as they possibly right. can. Like mm-hmm. there's a whole culture of craft and, yeah. and beards yeah. and yeah. like just making shit by hand that, I mean, basically it's like, Appalachia's been doing it all along, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and it's got yeah. this. Uh, it's it's very funny how circular those things could be. The values are kind of coming back here, although that's something that West Virginia's seen. I mean, there was the back to the land movement, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, decades ago, and right there, there have been times when they've they've been kind of uh, very primed to answer the zeitgeist right. with <laughs> with their natural gifts, right? right? right. And here we are, yeah. like foraging. Right. We just had a fuck of a foraging session. I mean, I, you know. I don't want to, you know, it wasn't sex, but Jesus Christ, it's close, man. When you go just like walk up the hill and have, yeah. uh, you know, just handfuls of like these morel mushrooms, this incredible wood sorrel, like the the whole thing was, I mean, it's a ridiculous bounty up there. Right. And that's right out in front of your door. Yeah, it's, it's right out back. You know, I mean, this, like hearing you talk about it is also, you know, a lot about what drives us to do this, you know, because we have a lot of clientele from out of state and they come and they seek us out and they want this sort of experience and and they want to be challenged too you know and they they have a certain perception of west virginia and they know that there's like somebody out there sort of trying to tell this different story and like people want to have their minds blown you know and they come here and like they eat this food and it's just like what you said it's like you you know something is insignificant is this little leaf of wood sorrel that you pick out of the woods and you like put it on a plate and Wow, I never knew that West Virginia had such depth and complexity before. <laughs> uh, there it is. So tell me about, uh, since this is also the thing that, that kind of brought us together, I'd, 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 I'd be interested in, in kind of your feelings about having worked with Tony, with, uh, with mm-hmm. Bourdain on, on the show, because you, you were there in his West Virginia episode, and I remember... Uh, talking to him, I think it was, he was emailing me while he was on the road here, and he was like so amped, so geeked, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that a, that you know perhaps only a New Yorker could be, <laughs> because it wasn't just like what, that he was fired up, but that it was also a, a uh, it was mixed with a, a heavy cut of surprise, right? Uh, right. And you know, I, I say that I, I can say that because I've been in that situation before too with West Virginia, where I've been like I've written back home to Julian, just you know. Man, this is amazing! Mm-hmm. Like this is a really beautiful part of the country, or you know. Um, so anyway, uh, tell me, tell me about working on that show and and how that came up and what went down here. I mean, it's been a a roller coaster and a half, honestly, just because it's like um, there was a hell of a lot of pressure, you know, that we sort of put on ourselves because we like we know that the opportunities to tell a story about West Virginia are like few and far between and you had your doubts about being being a part of the production well we're skeptical in general i think of national media you know there's like national media doesn't have the best track record of like dropping into west virginia and telling a story that we feel is fair and accurate and i mean there were a lot of people that didn't feel the parts unknown episode was uh what they wanted to see either but i i actually thought that the end result overall was was pretty good and um but yeah so to your question yeah when we got the first call 
it was a good thing that it was from uh, someone that we know very well, a good friend of ours, Elaine uh, McMillian Sheldon, who is a great uh, documentarian, a filmmaker in West Virginia. They had hired her to sort of do some some scouting of um, some scenes, and you know, between Elaine and and Mo Fallon, there were like you know a lot of connections like back to Lost Creek. So they right Mo they Fallon, who is the, the director, was born in West Virginia. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and took this shit very personal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he wanted to make oh, sure yeah. that this episode right. Uh, right. Rose, rose to the occasion for that. But that's a right. that's a great lesson, by the way, for uh, anybody who's trying to get out there and make documentaries or make television. Hire a fucking great field producer right. who's like a legit right. person. Mm-hmm. Pay pay yeah. enough money. Pay that money, and you're going to be saved. Right. And all someone sorts with of trouble. the local knowledge. I mean, yeah. that, that makes all the difference. Because I've we've had some bad experiences with. Uh, national media and uh, you know we've actually said no or just sort of like passed up some inquiries from other national media but just because we sort of know their style and their yeah. <laughs> track oh, record a, and when you know when, and when we um <laughs> you know so when we got that call from elaine you know we we knew we could trust elaine and then talking to mo and and hearing him talk about being from west virginia and hearing him talk about how important this this show was you know we knew that we uh we were in, in pretty good hands, but it's tough, you know, because it, like you, you sit down. Tony came out here. We had a we had basically like a big party, and we had a bunch of the everybody from the young folks who kind of help us out on our staff to these old farmers in their nineties who have passed on their varieties of heirloom beans to us, um, or these like old timers who grow and press sorghum with us in the fall. You know, they were all here, and it was. It was so special to have that one night, like with everybody sort of in our food community that we we really care about and to to sort of let let the world see that for a few minutes. But, you know, we talked about so much. We talked for like two and a half hours about all these, (laughs) you know, like really important things. And then it's it's tough to, to know what you talked about and sort of see it get condensed down to like a six minute segment or something. well so. shit it's a it's an hour-long show that <laughs> right. has six acts <laughs> right and right like you're never gonna bridge mm-hmm. you know from act three to yeah. four you're always bound yeah. to be uh but you guys played the anchor leg right you were, yeah yeah <laughs> you were the, the finishing act so we you know we 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 had like a lot of pressure on ourselves leading up to the shoot and then it was just sort of like nine months of total suspense or however much <laughs> just sort of waiting to see what what the show was going to be like. And then the, the reactions, it was like, this was the most sort of annoying part of it was um, like the reactions in West Virginia. I think overall it was, it was very positive, but there was a lot of uh, negativity, particularly from like the affluent left who they're, they're exactly the people that we talk about when, you know, we talk about these like narratives and these associations with West Virginia and with poverty, you know, like these, these people were making the point that we're not all poor coal miners. So they, you know, the poor coal miners have had their time in the spotlight, you know, like it's now time to talk about farmers markets, let's show the wineries and the <laughs> farmers market. I mean, cause we, like we want people to know that we have the same things that they have in their other states. And, um, you know, it was it was ridiculous because I thought it was it was really good that those coal miners got some time on TV, and it was good that they got a chance to tell a story that that they thought was fair about themselves. And and the way that you know we could validate that was like seeing what people in McDowell County, West Virginia, think of the episode. 
Like, Tony is a hero in McDowell County, West Virginia now, because this is like, in McDowell County, I should say for your folks listening in, that like McDowell County is, um, it's like one of the poorest counties. It's in the coal fields. It's uh, a place that you've undoubtedly read about dozens of times because it was sort of the, the focus of the national media during the uh, 2016 election. So oh boy. it was like, That's it's sort of like McDowell thing. County. It's like the heart of coal country, the uh-huh. heart of Trump country. Like, this is where media shows up to like figure out Appalachia. Right? right. So, so the people in McDowell County are used to being on TV and they're, and they're used being, to being, they're being used to demonstrate right. something right. that, that by the way, yeah. you know, belies the fact that there are more Trump voters in New York. Than mm-hmm. West Virginia. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So right. like you can take that shit right. home, but, but still it's out there and that's, right. that's, that's the mentality. Mm-hmm. They got a good response from the, or you got a good response from them on the episode. Oh yeah. And I mean, I think the, it's just that they're used to having media come down with the story already figured out in their minds and they just want to look for somebody to confirm it all, right? Yeah. And they these people feel like Tony came in and sort of said, well, like, what is the story? Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, you're, you're a fun follow on Twitter for that reason too because, like, as you said before, it's complicated mm-hmm. and you do a fair amount of clapping back at people mm-hmm. To just kind of remind them that it's complicated and yeah and you know we had worked with you on the explore parts unknown stuff some of the writing and and recipes and talking about uh kind of filling out uh the the information of the episode mm-hmm. and just watching people like kind of yeah come in and just drop their drop their two cents about what they thought should and should not have been in the right. episode and and having you talk about west virginia food culture and and how it actually is 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 pretty fascinating to me yeah. um now, it, it, I mean, one of the issues, too, is that, that Appalachia is a, a diverse place. Mm-hmm. And you would mention that indigenous Appalachian cuisine is actually comes from indigenous communities who were here before. But it's also not Scots-Irish entirely on the European side. Oh, yeah. Um, or even on the, you know, kind of post-after-Columbus moments right. here. There's a lot of diversity that, right. that doesn't actually make it into the picture. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like? I mean, t- tell us tell us about some of those kind of those bigger cultures that have come through and, and what they've done for the food here. I don't even know where to start with that because, I mean, I guess I should just start with the saying that the myth of the Scots-Irish Appalachian is kind of bullshit because, you know, like, that's actually very few of us, like, by the numbers. Yeah. You know, they're, I, oh, I forget uh, where this actually came from, but one of my good friends, Ronnie Lundy, who's a, she's uh, a great writer. She wrote this great uh, beard winning book called Vittles. Okay. Um, Francis Lamb edited it. It's a uh, oh yeah, it's I know good. that. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But she she cites this study or survey, I guess that came out where it's like you know how people identify for their heritage, and you know it's like Scots Irish was an option in Appalachia, but you know, like so few people, you know, identify as as Scots Irish, and not only do they just like not identify, it's like that's just not you know that's not all the heritage because the heritage here is so it is so diverse and it is so complex and there are these you know waves of uh immigration that come from you know from eastern europe or from the middle east or from places like spain or italy i mean that if you go a few miles down the road you know into clarksburg there are you know significant african-american communities there are like huge italian communities in clarksburg because clarksburg was settled by a fair number of uh Italian miners who've 
you know, their families have stuck around. It's just like, it's great for the food culture in Clarksburg. Cause, uh, you know, there are all these old school spaghetti houses and these traditional Italian bakeries or these little shops where these old women make this traditional Italian sausage still. And, you know, that this culture is still sort of alive. You know, this immigrant culture is still alive and it shows up in, um, in Clarksburg and the Italian community. And you're working on a project now about Spanish uh, and other types of sausage makers. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. We, you made the soup today from, you know, locally made morcilla and longanisa mm-hmm. sausage, which is like a leftover from the Spaniards that came right. uh, to work here, you said, during Prohibition. So it's like, you know, kind of keeping the memory of those people alive mm-hmm. can also help disrupt some of that that monotone yeah i guess yeah 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 for sure and you know there's um one of my favorite things to do is to put some lebanese food on the menu and (laughs) and blow minds and blow (laughs) minds yeah and and this is the thing that i particularly like to do when we go out of state because i have this cookbook and i have this collection of recipes from the lebanese community in charleston from back in like the 1950s and charleston used to be it still is but used to be like this huge Lebanese community. There was something like a dozen Lebanese grocery stores in Charleston, West Virginia in wow. like the 1950s. Um, not, not a time where Lebanese people were seen widely in American popular right, culture, right? right? So uh, yeah, Lebanese and Syrians, but there are still community, there still is a Lebanese festival in Wheeling, West Virginia. And, you know, I love to make this like kibbeh. I usually make it with venison, actually, oh, venison kibbeh. And, uh, you know, I love to do shit like that. And, and, and you know have people tell me well you know you pitch yourself as an appalachian chef and uh this is like lebanese food it's not appalachian food and and i love it because it gives me this opportunity to say you know just set some shit straight to say like well what makes this scots irish shit more appalachian than right you know the food of these people who also moved here because of work opportunities or (laughs) the same thing and it it just gets people to think in different terms about like you know who does or doesn't sort of belong on the pages of our history books and who who gets to to be part of the story and um there's a lot more than no fly list yeah 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 in in west virginia dna Um, And, and i mean this work has just like opened up so many opportunities to to establish these great relationships with people like you know in the spanish community or in the lebanese community or in the italian community because uh there's been this sort of longing for some of them to get some of these stories out and there's just sort of been uh you know there hasn't really been much interest it it actually took a guy from spain to come to west virginia and uh you know do a documentary on a story in immigrants in west virginia for me to know when i was in college i saw this documentary about uh, the Spanish settlements in West Virginia and you know, like hearing these old timers there were still around at the time, like talking about making this traditional Spanish sausage and you know, so crazy speaking yeah. Spanish to this guy. And I was like, wow, this is, this is a place I have to find and I have to find these people and I have to learn about these stories. And it's a, it's a special thing to be able to connect with your neighbors like that and get, get to uh, work with them and get them to like be so much a part of our, our work and our daily lives really. And just like, this is our, it's a pretty good gig. We're <laughs> hanging out and making Spanish sausage and, you know, and learning tell shit about it yeah. and teaching stuff. <laughs> well, so speaking of good gigs, like, you know, I we're here uh, on the, the farm that mm-hmm. you and, and your wife, Amy 
have that had come down from her great grandfather. I think this this great, house, great great grandfather, yeah. great great grandfather. Yeah. Uh, so long, long time hold, mm-hmm. 180 acres, and you guys are doing, you know, I think what is the sort of dreamy job of creating your own kind of, you know, Elysian here. Like you're trying to create uh, a place where you can grow. Uh, both the food and the livestock to produce the kind of food that you want to do and and mm-hmm. have it be something of a model of mm-hmm. I don't know I mean this sounds like a a shitty headline in a Sunday style section but you know this kind of like new Appalachian life yeah. that you could have that is uh, you know kind of rewarding and creative but also very in touch with where you are so tell me some of the shit that you're doing here like what are you doing now and what are you what's your vision for this place in the future. Well, uh, so right now we sort of are like home bases here at the farm uh, from the farming side. And we sort of get to use our kitchen as a little bit of like a lab, you know, but but we're not able to operate out of the farm commercially because we have to like work in a commercial kitchen. So we have a kitchen that we rent in Clarksburg. That's sort of our, our home base on the on the culinary side. But we're we're sort of like this traveling road show where we, you know, like pack all of our shit up and travel around to a venue that will host us for a night and then we like go somewhere else and it's almost like a I would say it's sort of like a culinary equivalent of a traveling band you know because it's like the setup is kind of the same like the venue hosts us the venue promotes it they sell the tickets and people come and it's not like going out to eat at a restaurant you know it is like people come for a show almost it's like right. this they want to like hear you talk like the, about yeah the they want to hear us they, talk about it right. and they, you know like they want the the sort of full experience of it so you know eventually we want to build a facility on the farm and i think the like the wheels are really starting to turn on that this year um i'm not sure exactly what the timeline is going to be but up until now we've basically just been sort of like fixing the farm up and trying to get it back to life because this was a this was a working farm way back in the day when amy's great-great-grandfather ran it there was a lot going on here Uh, and then her grandparents were the most recent ones to to live here they died in the house all their stuff was still here and then the house just sort of got abandoned the farm got abandoned for you know a couple decades a few decades so all the outbuildings collapsed like there was so much to to clean up to bring it back and uh i mean the house was just sort of like falling apart because it had been abandoned for so long so so we've really just been hard at work just trying to bring this place back and um you know now we're sort of at the point where we can start to think a little bit more seriously about building a a kitchen facility Mm -hmm. on the farm um but but there is cattle you've got rabbits you have a few remaining yeah yeah yeah. uh, you got chickens like Mm -hmm. and then you have you have these kind of hills these forests yeah 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 using and you you serve from from all of that in in terms of like the kind of meals that you put together Mm -hmm. too Mm -hmm. so that's i guess it's a natural step to find a way to get people to come to where it's actually happening right right uh, right because this i mean the the product for us is like sure it's the food but like it's us and it's the story of us like fixing this farm up and being here in this place and it's like you know the story of us sort of like discovering or rediscovering a lot um through our community or through you know even the history of the farm and sort of some of the recipes that we found here or yeah or our own just kind of like appalachian resourcefulness story where we just sort of like bit the bullet and moved here without 
you know, having much money and, and like moving into a place that was just in total disarray. And right. Like, well, this you is, know. this is it, man. This is Casa Chow Chow. Like you're, <laughs> you're making like something pretty special out of like what was, what was given to right. you on some, on some level. Right. So I don't know. I, I just, you know, a few weeks ago I was up in Favikin in Northern Sweden, which has, has been very successful at mm-hmm. creating that kind of a place-based experience. Right modeled around a, a, a story of a of a cuisine and, mm-hmm. and, and the, the you know the people who front it and mm-hmm. I just like I, I see all that potential here somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, and like you're already kind of making it happen, uh, but like creating that as a as a destination. Right, right. Like and that. I'm psyched to have the opportunity to bring people to the farm too because so much of the stories that we tell are about the crops that we grow here, you know, and and the some of the foraging that we do, but but the crops in particular because we've got like let's say these heirloom beans. They're like somebody's heirloom beans that they've been saving for you know, like 60 or 70 years. This, you know, there's a guy, for instance, there's a guy in Clarksburg, uh, Italian guy named Ben Portaro. He's like, he, he just turned 98. So um, he gave us these Roma beans, these tomatoes, these peppers that his parents from Italy brought with them, right? So like he's been holding on to these things that aren't just vegetables, right? This is like... This is, this is like the story, you know, yeah. of his people and his family. And, that's and, the double helix right, right there. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and, and that's the case with, like, so many of the crops that we grow. Like, we've been blessed to get these seeds from people who have really stewarded these things over the years, not because they really like green beans, but because, like, this is a story about, like, them and their family and their heritage and their community. And, um, you know, I want people to come here and to experience this in the growing season, you know, when we're, we've got like 25 varieties of tomatoes or beans or whatever growing out there or, the, or see the bloody butcher corn on the vine or, or see the sorghum and, you know, like be part of the, the process. And that's the stuff that I think it's like, it's fun to go somewhere else and, and tell the story about the stuff that we're growing on the farm, but it's going to be really cool when we're able to bring people here and create, keep creating community based on what we're doing here. That sounds like the stuff. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what you guys get up to with it. Um, so, so yeah, you have to come back. I'm going to be uh, back here. <laughs> I mean, <I'll> be, <laughs> you, you're going to be a little sick of it. I think. <laughs> I'm like Tony. I'm like West Virginia, man. <laughs> yeah, right. Who knew? It's an amazing place. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been such a pleasure uh, yeah. being a, being a guest of yours and having you as a guest uh, on the show. And let's uh, let's go kick some ass. Let's do it. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode. Taffy Mokanyazi, our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle was our editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next episode on this feed will be on Monday, October 5th, and it's from our never-before-released Berlin series, which is continuing. We are drinking and biking and talking with longtime foreign correspondent Simon Schuster, who has much to say about Ukraine and Russia and America and how we're all more alike than we might want to be. We will meet you there.